Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Very few articles uh, talk about naval encounters, and it turns out that there's a good reason for it. We had a terrible navy. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Lou Norton discussing the hard life of sailors during the American Revolution, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Lou Norton. He's back with a new article focusing on the life of, and capture of quite frankly, uh, seamen in the American Revolution. Professor Norton's article is thoughtful. If you've read any of his articles before, you know exactly what to expect from him. But he gives us an opportunity today to really look at the realities of life at sea and the struggles of being a sailor during a time of war. The stories in this article are are tough to read. You'll hear some of that tonight. Uh, Enormous sacrifice Uh, enormous pain and suffering. And a lot of times, for guys who don't have monuments built to them or or battlefields that can be visited, talking about their heroic deeds. But they're important parts of the American revolutionary story, to be sure. And Professor Norton does a great job of bringing those stories to life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Lou Norton. Lou Norton, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, make a little another contribution to your, your program. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm a little peculiar in that I'm a retired uh, professor from the University of Connecticut. My background is uh, unusual in that I'm uh, professionally, I'm a dentist. I'm a, a DMD. Uh, I did my undergraduate uh, up at Bowdoin College up in Maine, uh, on the coast of Maine. And I was a chemistry major, and then I did my, my, my dental studies at Harvard University at the School of Dental Medicine, part of the medical school, and did a residency at Children's Hospital. And then I became uh, did military service and, uh, in the Army for two years, active duty in the beginning of the Vietnam War, and then... Uh, had an academic career first at the University of Kentucky and then uh, the University of Connecticut and um, so I was doing uh, clinical work and uh, a lot of a lot of uh, actually basic science research I did a lot of papers and uh, published in scientific journals uh, you say so gee but you're talking about a history project uh, when I retired, I said, gee, uh, with this liberal arts background from Bowdoin, I really uh, enjoyed history on the coast, etc. I grew up in Gloucester, Mass., which is a seaport, very near the ocean, within 300 yards of the Atlantic Ocean. 
And uh, I said, I think I'll go back and get a degree in history. So I did graduate work and got a, a master's at the uh, University of Connecticut in uh, maritime history, largely, and uh, was uh, spent a lot of time at Mystic Seaport, uh, just down the road from us, about an hour or so away. So that sort of uh, is, <clears throat> I think, all you really need to know. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, uh, it turns out that uh, this uh, topic, I've, I've written, I had written an, an awful lot of stuff in, in history, largely maritime history. I have things which uh, went in other, other directions, but I, the, the bulk of this, I've got something like 250 publications in that area, but most of them are uh, maritime. And uh, I have uh, two books and an article which talk about the three people that we're, we're talking about here. Uh, the first one uh, was about Nathaniel Fanning, which was published just exactly a year ago. It was last January. And um, so that got me interested in uh, doing his <clears throat> research about him and the fact that he was a prisoner at one time. And then um, I wrote an article for, I think it was uh, Naval History out of the Naval Institute Press about Conning, who we're going to talk about later. So I had to do a lot of research about him. And the last one, which is my favorite guy, is Joshua Barney. And I actually published a complete book about him uh, back in the year 2000. Uh, so 20 years ago, 21 years ago now. And uh, He's sort of my my favorite guy, and this this uh, I went into his his life in uh, uh, very great detail. So uh, each of them had been captured, and each of them uh, had were released from prison <laughs> in rather strange ways. <laughs> Talk about the life of an American sailor during the American Revolution. Well, a lot of times uh, it is difficult to talk about because during the American Revolution, if you look at the Journal of the American Revolution, almost all the battles talked about are land battles or what happened in and around on on land. Very few articles uh, talk about naval encounters, and it turns out that there's a good reason for it. We had a terrible Navy. In fact, it was difficult, if you think about it, uh, you wanted to form a Navy, you need a ship. Well, you can't go and build a ship, a naval ship, a warship, if you are being occupied, or essentially by the the, uh, the British Navy, which had a huge navy at the time of the the, the uh, Revolutionary War started. They had 350 ships over here, and then uh, if you're starting to build something, who, ooh, I wish it to be a warship. Well, they would immediately become suspicious. The only thing they could do was take some merchant ships and uh, convert them and get some guns on board and uh, hopefully form a navy out of this ragtag thing. Uh, during the Re- uh, Revolutionary War, well, all the ships that we had in the Continental Navy from the beginning to end were 65. During that same period, uh, the British fielded over 500 ships at the, by the end of the war. So we, they were terribly outclassed. Um, and then there were uh, various levels of, uh, uh, we'll, we'll say, armament. One is the Continental Navy, which was very small. Um, and they had, uh, as I say, only 65 ships. And uh, not many people wanted to do this because 
the rewards in this were not very great because the, the thing that was com- competing against them was something called letter of marks or privateers. This was a good deal because you could go on a privateer, uh, you get a letter of mark, which essentially was a, a license to <laughs> become a pirate for the United States uh, and interdict uh, shipping. And if you captured the ship, uh, the contents and the ship uh, could be auctioned off, and you would get uh, a piece of the action, whoever was sponsoring the letter of mark. And therefore, if you're a crewman, you could, get, you could make out fairly well if you were successful. And during that time, uh, uh, about 2,600-odd uh, ships were <coughs> pardon me, used as privateers by the American government. The bad news was that if you were a privateer, since Britain did not recognize the United States uh, as a re- regular government, they didn't recognize the letter's remark. Therefore, they, if you, they caught, captured you, particularly in the very beginning of the war, uh, they considered you a pirate because you, you were confiscating ships uh, and you, your license was really uh, null and void. It didn't mean anything. There was a third element during the Revolutionary War, which a lot of people forget about. They had state navies, and this figures into the article a little bit. Uh, Four states, Connecticut, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina, each had state navies. Uh, Connecticut just had a small one. They had the Minerva and Britannia and the the famous Turtle, which was this, quote, submarine, which didn't work too well, but they actually had, had this... Little, sort of a barrel that went underwater. But that's, we won't talk too much about that, but it's part of the Connecticut Navy. Georgia had four ships. Pennsylvania was the biggie. They had 27 vessels and about 21 small vessels out of Pennsylvania. So they were kind of the head of this. South Carolina had 12. And then Rhode Island had one. New Hampshire had one. And Massachusetts had something called a state militia, um, sort of... Uh, if you were in the militia there, you could choose land or sea, but they didn't have a formal state uh, navy. The advantage of being in the state navy is that largely you patrolled off the coast of your own state. You didn't have to go far out to sea. You were largely protecting the harbors and around your state. So there were the three types of things you had. You had the Continental Navy, the Letters of Mark, and the state navies against this, the very formidable and very well-trained British Navy. Who was Nathaniel Fanning? Uh, Fanning was a, uh, since I'm from a Connecticut person at this point, um, he was from Stonington, Connecticut. Stonington is just over the border from Rhode Island. The uh, Mystic Seaport, which is quite renowned in the nation, uh, is part of its, uh, it was, is in the, the uh, it is, Mystic is one suburb of Fan, uh, that area. And uh, I wrote this book, which was published and was reviewed actually in the, the journal. And Fanning was an interesting fellow in that he um, would, went to sea as a very young man. And uh, ultimately, uh, the, the capture, which we talked about, the very, he went to sea and was captured in one of the very earliest excursions. And he was placed in. Um, since he was captured at sea, they happened to be captured by a ship which was 
being returning General Howe back to England for his next assignment after he was uh, in charge of the uh, the army here in in North America. So rather than take him ashore, they decided, since we're going to England, we'll take you with us. <laughs> and uh, they treated them very, very badly uh, in the ship, put them in the hole. But there's a very funny story related to it. They were really being abused, but next to them was, uh, or <clears throat> behind the bulkhead, with the stores which they had for the general, because he, he you know, obviously was going to be taken care of rather well. And they found a way of breaking into the stores and so that they could do it surreptitiously so that the captives were not aware uh, of this. So the prisoners uh, ate rather well, drank rather well, but when they went on deck, they all uh, sort of went, <coughs> complained about everything, etc. And uh, so <laughs> by the time they landed, they noticed that the, the prisoners seemed to be in better physical condition <laughs> than the sailors. And they, they, afterwards, they discovered what, what they had done. So anyway, Fanning was taken to um, a, the prison called Fortin, and uh, there he was in, incarcerated with everybody else. One of the things which was quite interesting at that time, they were, they, obviously prisoners were not treated very well. But um, what happened was the townspeople, a lot of the townspeople were very sympathetic to Americans, and they would come visit them, etc. And uh, he got word that they was about to have a prisoner exchange, and uh, he ultimately uh, was exchanged for a prisoner after, uh, I forget the number of months or years that he was there, but uh, the, the depravity he had was relatively short, short-lived and uh, he was exchanged and ended up in France. And at the time, he met uh, Benjamin Franklin. And they were at the time they were saying, "Gee, we need some uh, people because this fellow named John Paul Jones was here. He's looking for some crewmen. And you speak the English language, and you were an American. How about joining John Paul Jones's ship, which he did? And he was a uh, assigned there as a, a midshipman." And one of the things with his his role there was a topman. Uh, if you know uh, the three-masted ship, they have these little platforms on the top of each each of the masts, and he had he was the captain, so to speak, of the uh, main mast, the one in the middle. And uh, what they would do is they climb up there and they would shoot down onto the decks of the ship that they were uh, attacking. Uh, with muskets, and they had gr grenades, rather crude, crude hand grenades of the year of the era, and they used these uh, during the during the battles that they had with other ships. So he uh, fought under John Paul Jones, and he was uh, there for the, Jones's most famous battle against the Serapis, and uh, that is sort of Fanning's story. He went on to become a uh, he didn't like Jones. <laughs> he ran him up a flagpole at one point, and then uh, when he when he left, he, Jones was not a very nice man to work one under. That's for sure. And uh, he ended up uh, going to France because they were our allies. Became a a privateer for the French for a while. It was sort of licensed because they didn't have foreign people as privateers, but later, as they became more and more allied with us, they let that go. And then he was given a commission in the French Navy. So he actually served as an officer, a lieutenant in the French Navy toward the, uh, the end of his tenure during the Revolutionary War. 
So in- interesting fellow. And the book which I wrote was something I didn't write it. I had actually edited it. He wrote a uh, memoir about his time there, but be- he didn't have much education. The, the If you read it, the very beginning, it says, ain't got much education, but here's what I think. So uh, the spelling was a little weird. The sentence structure was a little weird. But if you went through it, it's an amazing uh, uh, story about what his life there. And particularly the thing I enjoyed is what it was like in France and England during the war, which uh, just before the French Revolution and what the English were thinking about the war with the United States at that time. And he he, he had that in his book. So what I did is I just kind of edited it to make it more accessible. Uh, so it read more like a story, but didn't. I kept it in the same vein as uh, Fanning had, had written it. So it sounds pretty much the way he did it. He, he wrote it back in the, the was it published, I think it was 1806, is my recollection. Talk, if you could, a bit about Gustavus Conningham. Yeah, Cunningham was the most successful of all of the um, naval people. Uh, and he, his story is really weird. Um, he started off um, <coughs> essentially uh, trying to run some uh, guns and ammunition and everything for the American Revolution, and he ended up getting it in, uh, in France, of all things. And, uh, but the, at the time, we were not allied with France, and the British were upset with him doing this, and they, they took him to prison, etc. And he had, um, he had been given, uh, it's a very long story, but he had been, been given a commission by Benjamin Franklin as a, uh, as a captain in the Continental Navy, but there was all sorts of shenanigans going on with Silas Dean and Arthur Lee, and uh, you have to really read his story, but uh, very, very convoluted. And, um, but he, he, was, uh, he was harassing the British in their home territory. There were three uh, people that did that. John Paul Jones was one, and that's what he was famous for. Cunningham did it, and he was very successful. He, he had... Uh, in the high 20s, vessels which he took and the insurance rates in England went way the heck up because of Cunningham, and he was really a very much of a wanted man. He was an Irish Im- immigrant, and they particularly didn't like him uh, even more so because the British were rather anti-Irish to begin with. So this made his, his life a little harder. Uh, but he, he sailed out of Philadelphia, and he was a... Uh, a member while he sailed out of Philadelphia of a society which was kind of important in his, his life in the captivity. Since he, he was part of this, there was something called Society for the Relief of Poor, Aged, and Infirm Masters of Ships. Uh, and uh, this society, in essence, looked after their own if they were uh, hurt in some way. So what had happened, making a long story short, he eventually... Um, when he was imprisoned in, in by the French, they took his commission away, so he didn't have a commission. And he was supposed to get another one from uh, from Benjamin Franklin. And then he went about his job uh, harassing the, the fleet, as he did very successfully. He was caught again. And uh, they had him in, uh, in, in chains. They were tr- taking him uh, to 
back to England to, in this case, Old Mill Prison, which was the other prison near Plymouth. And he was in uh, terrible state, straits. And what had happened was that they said, ah, he is a captain in the uh, Continental Navy, and if you kill him or do anything, uh, how you treat him, we are going to treat prisoners, British naval officers, in the same way you're treating him. And meanwhile, his wife uh, heard about this, and she went before Congress, and that was what they, uh, the Congress let the British know that that was going to be uh, the way things were going to go if this man was hurt in any way. So it was kind of a, well, <clears throat> a, I wouldn't say a prisoner exchange, but okay, we'll, we'll at least treat him humanely for a while. But up until that time, he was treated terribly, terribly bad, if you read his, his, his story. And his wife came to his aid, and uh, Congress came to his aid with this tit-for-tat uh, thing. Anyway, at one point, he wanted to escape, and he tried a couple of ways. One was, uh, they, in those prisons, people would come in and visit. Not something which you don't do today, but crowds would come in visit with the prisoners. So he decided he would put on some uh, ordinary clothes like they had and kind of stroll out when they did. Didn't work. <laughs> Another time he came and he got some rimless glass, oh, uh, silver rimmed glasses, etc., and disguised himself as a doctor and almost got out, but one of the guards recognized him in disguise and then he got uh, captured a second time. Third time, they tunneled underneath the, the walls of Old Mill Prison, and approximately 50 of these uh, prisoners escaped at this time and made their way uh, to France and, uh, and freedom. So uh, his, the story of his uh, captivity and his freedom was really rather dramatic. And, uh, but if you really want to read, read something about a... Uh, a life of going all over the place. Cunningham is the guy. You know, he, he was the most successful of all the naval people during that war. And actually, um, he had a hard time getting his the money that he was he was owed at the end because they didn't believe a lot of the stuff. But uh, that's another story. The last person you talk about in your article is Joshua Barney. Could you talk about him? Joshua Barney, as I said, is my favorite guy. <laughs> Barney is the only one who was a hero of both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. Uh, The the second part is very uh, apropos to this conversation because he was in charge in the War of 1812 of defending Washington from the British troops to come in when they burned the capital. And his naval unit actually uh, defended the capital in Bladensburg. Uh, they were overrun, but he was uh, somewhat of a hero of, of that incident with the burning of the capital. But let's backtrack the Revolutionary War, which is the the topic we're talking about. Barney uh, Barney was uh, very su- successful in uh, also going after the British, and he was actually uh, incarcerated on one of the ships in Wallabit Bay in in Brooklyn. For a while, but because he was an officer, uh, the, the British obviously had various levels of uh, treating people badly. And if you were an officer, you got a little bit better treatment. But they considered him a very dangerous man, and uh, they ultimately decided that they would ship him 
to England where he would not cause trouble if he was loose here in the States. So he ended up at the same prison that Cunningham was in, was in. a number of other naval people were in that prison, but he was uh, incarcerated for some time, and then he decided upon a fascinating plot to get out. Uh, it's sort of bizarre, but it really happened this way, according to his biography. Um, at one point, he was uh, in the prison yard, uh, messing with some of the other prisoners, and he fell and hurt himself, and he was now lame. And uh, he started to use a crutch to get around, and so the, pr the prison guard said, well, uh, there's little chance of him escaping because he's obviously uh, hurt. And then he started to wear what he called a great coat. So I imagine this is just a very large roomy coat, which is very, very important in what his escape plan. So the, the pr prison guards were no longer focusing on him as much as they were, and he, was, he would, in his crutch, make his way around the, the yard. He also befriended a, uh, a, one of the guards, a sergeant of the guard, who was uh, on, the, on the wall because he, uh, a lot of uh, the British were for the liked Americans. You know, they were they considered fellow countrymen that <laughs> maybe had the right idea. I don't know, but anyway, he befriended this guard. So, the plan was the guard was going to tell him when the uh, the most of the guards were away. It's going to sometime later. Um, he meanwhile, and this is the strangest thing. I, I can't account for it, but this is what they said. People would come into the prison, and uh, you could buy food from them, anything you needed, etc., clothing, etc. Where they got the money, I don't know. But anyway, the story goes that he said, gee, you're a tailor. Could you make me an officer's uniform, a British naval officer's uniform? And the guy said, yeah, sure. You know, I think you're 42 long or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so he, he had a British naval officer's uniform made. And then at, at the appropriate time, he put it on in his clothes, put the great coat on over it so it couldn't show. Uh, the uh, sergeant on the wall gave the signal that this was a good time, and the signal went out, so they started a fight in the, um, uh, the prison yard, but away from the section wall where he was. And then he prearranged to have one of the tallest members that were there get up next to the wall, and he came running over to him, dropped the, the crutch, which was now a, a, a false thing, uh, climbed up on his shoulders, and the tall guy managed to boost him up, so now he was on top of the wall, and then he took the great coat, threw that back over, and it went on to another chap who then <clears throat> wore it around the yard, so when they were trying to find out uh, who was still there, uh, he was you know, essentially covered for a short period of time. So there is Barney now. He's got a, a naval officer's uniform on. He's on top of the wall, and he assumes a military bearing, goes strutting off, gets some salutes, and, and, and in essence walks out the door, <laughs> walks out the prison in the naval officer's uniform. Uh, so that was his escape there. There's a, a secondary part which is even more fascinating. He now is going to go to, he wants to make his way to a safe house. He finds a safe house. There are uh, two 
Americans and a, uh, a servant who I, I assume was a black fellow, but one of the slaves, and uh, they were trying to make their way to France. So he gets into a, uh, a fishing smack, so, and he puts on a fisherman's clothing on top of his naval uniform, and the, the, uh, the servant uh, helps the sail, and the other two guys go below so they won't be seen. And they make it almost all the way to France when a, a, a British privateer intersects them. He says, what are you doing way over here? And they're trying to uh, uh, find out who this guy is. So Barney immediately goes and says, ah, I am a um, naval officer. He takes the clothes off the, uh, the outside and displays his uniform. I'm going on a secret mission. But the, uh, the privateer seems suspicious of the whole thing. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So they decide to take him uh, back to England, very close to the prison he just escaped from. And... Um, they wanted to have him go before the admiral, who happened to be uh, busy at the time, but he was going to have an, an interview with him shortly. But meanwhile, um, he manages to talk to the people he was with and says, look, you guys are in trouble because you help, and essentially help a uh, prisoner escape from the prison. Tell you what we're going to do. He says, I will go and leave you there because if I'm not, not there, you'd, they'll probably be more lenient to them and they'll be more looking for me and not you. So he manages to jump this ship, goes, climbs down over one of the lines, gets a little uh, small boat that they had attached to it, comes ashore, and making a long, long story short, he uh, makes his way uh, out, out to sea, gets himself uh, onto an, another boat, and makes his way back to, to, to France to freedom for a second time. So uh, the means of escape for these guys were really quite quite bizarre and uh, in many ways kind of funny, <laughs> in, particularly in Barney's case. Uh, it's a wonderful story, and uh, that's part of my, the, uh, the biography that I wrote back in the year 2000. I was, in fact, in preparing for this, I reread the story and uh, that aspect of it, and I, I had, had forgotten some of the details. It's really, really quite quite amusing and yet very, very brave on his part. How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Well, obviously, uh, one of the things which, as we started off the conversation, was people don't talk too much about uh, the maritime aspect of, of the Revolutionary War. And so this uh, focuses on a bit of that. And then the other thing is, gee, if you were uh, captured, uh, what happened to you? And um, the, the answer is that um, there were all sorts of bizarre things took place uh, in England if you happen to end up in England. The, most people were uh, incarcerated in the, the hulks and off Brooklyn, but a, a fair number, particularly if you're out at sea, ended up in, in uh, UK. And um, the way of getting out was, uh, I wish you understand, the, revol the, the Revolutionary War era uh, all the events didn't necessarily take place on the North American soil. Some of the things and some of the more dramatic things actually took place in Europe, particularly uh, having to do with France and, uh, and Holland in particular. Lou Norton, thanks again. Thank you for the, for the interview. And I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. 
any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.